Well, hi, everyone. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. Um, we're grateful uh, for this church. Uh, we recognize uh, that we are here on our birthday, our anniversary, um, because of your goodness and because of your provision in our lives. You've been at work in your church uh, from the very beginning. You've been at work in this church uh, from the very beginning. And we believe you'll continue to work in and through us as we make ourselves available to you. So let today uh, not be so much a recognition of, uh, of what Summit is about, but a remembrance of who you are and, and what you have done for us and what you will continue to do through us in the years ahead. We pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, hi, everyone, and happy birthday, Summit. I don't know if you know this, but we are 18 years old as a church today. And uh, in 18 years, you know, I, I think any birthday, anniversary, anything like that, um, as arbitrary uh, as they may seem, um, marks something, right? It marks something significant. And there are some mile markers, some time markers in our lives uh, that feel a little bit more significant than others. 18 in our context, in our culture, in our day, is one of those markers. It marks for us when you turn 18, uh, you're no longer a big kid, you're somehow a tiny adult. And, uh, and you, you get the rights and responsibilities of being an adult, you get to vote. So we get to vote this year uh, in an election year, and I know everyone uh, wants to vote this year. We have these, these things that are available to us, uh, these circumstances that are different for us uh, than, than before. For many, 18 also marks the finishing of high school and the going on into the unknown, maybe the exciting unknown, maybe the intimidating unknown um, of whatever is next. And, uh, and so happy birthday um, to us. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to have been a part of this church uh, for the entirety of those uh, first 18 years. 18 years ago, we started Summit um, having no idea really what we were getting into. I mean, we had encouragers, we had good examples in churches uh, that, that we had been a part of, um, but we, we didn't really know what we were up to. We were, in the words of Khalid, young, dumb, and broke, and, uh, and, uh, and all we had really um, was a confidence that God was calling us to something, that he had invited us into this. We trusted God and knew that he was up to something good, that he had a plan for us, and we had a basic understanding of what he wants for his church. We had enough optimism to believe that somehow in the months following 9-11, which was a really difficult time to raise money and to plant a church, that somehow God would be good, that God would provide in those unprecedented, unforeseen, unwanted circumstances, that God would make his church come alive. Before we officially launched, uh, we, we started with the question, what is a church to, supposed to do? What are we supposed to be about? We wanted to be really clear uh, about that because churches can look a thousand different ways. Uh, they can be in a thousand different contexts. And, uh, and every church, every true biblical church, has at its heart a certain set of, uh, of beliefs and a certain set of purposes that reflect God's plan for his church. And we wanted to make sure that we were clear on those so that whatever summit looked like, wherever we gathered to worship, however it looked, whether it was in a muddy ditch or, or a, a palatial building, that whatever happened in there was honoring to God, that it was part of what he wants for his church. So in the end, we decided to make our vision clear. Not catchy, not pithy, but clear. Our vision is to form biblically functioning communities that reach lost people, connect in Christ-centered relationships, teach truth, serve others, and worship God. 
everything that we do, everything that we've done uh, from the beginning of the church, everything that we are doing today and everything that we will be invited into in the future is a reflection of those purposes, those activities of biblically functioning communities. I know the guys told you a bit more about that uh, in, uh, in the greeting and, uh, and if you ever want to learn more about our vision and how we think about it and all of that, we'd invite you to come and join a partnership class uh, at some point where we dive a little bit deeper into the depth of meaning in each of those aspects of the vision. When we started, our first meeting, our first, our first gathering was actually not in a clubhouse. It wasn't in a movie theater. It was in uh, an apartment. It was actually, we alternated um, between uh, Brandy and my apartment and my sister and brother-in-law's, brother-in-law's apartment. We kind of shared uh, a landing between our two apartments and we go back and forth between the two. There were six and a half of us uh, at that point and, uh, and, and we'd get together We'd pray for each other if there was any updates, which, you know, early on uh, there, there wasn't much in the way of that. We'd share those things, um, but, but we committed ourselves, even in those uncertain, what are we up to, how do we do church moments, that we weren't going to wait to be the church. In those early days, we recognized, yes, there's an anticipation of something that will be, that will be more fully expressed in the years ahead, but we're not going to wait to be the church. I love that God gave us, at least in that moment, the wisdom to recognize that we were the church right there in those moments. Eventually, uh, we moved to a clubhouse and felt like we were really moving on up in the world. Um, and, and in those early days, just forming our core community, we hadn't launched yet, but in those very early days, we didn't wait to, to, to care about lost people around us. In fact, there were people, for whatever reason, I think it was just they sensed uh, that God was up to something, there's something different happening in our community. Before we even launched, when most of our meetings, again, were still, were still humble uh, gatherings, where we were trying to figure out and sort out what it looked like to do church, there were people who didn't yet know Jesus who were totally committed to being a part of the community. God was drawing them in, and that shaped our DNA as a church. I love that that's a part of our story. Eventually, we moved into the, into the Aloma Cinema Grill, and in doing so, in opening our doors publicly, we, we reminded ourselves, we remembered in that activity, that we weren't going to settle for it just being about us. As great as those formative months were before we launched, it wasn't about us. It wasn't about us hunkering down and being okay with enough is enough. We were going to be welcoming to anyone who would walk through our doors. In Winter Park High School, we had our first nice serve. We put our flag in the ground saying that we're not going we're, we're to focus on just serving each other, serving the church. We're not going to be about us. We're going to be about what God wants to do in the world. So we said, everyone, sign up, show up, go out and serve. And people did that, and that has shaped our church. From there, we moved into our, our first permanent home, which is the Herndon Theater Building, and, uh, and the whole acquisition of that and every bit of it was just such a miracle of God's provision. And God, God let us know clearly in, the, in that process that He has better for us than we can imagine for ourselves. We wanted a broke-down, empty funeral home uh, for, for our church building, and He gave us something that was so much use, more useful for His purposes for where He was taking us as a church. From there, Waterford, Lake Mary, the 33rd campus, all of those were, were us saying, we're not going to be confined um, to the walls of a building. The church isn't confined to the walls of a building. We're going to go where God calls us. We're going to not be limited by the circumstances, physical or otherwise, that we're in. When we lost Isaac, my, my best friend and, and our first senior pastor, 
and all the pain and all the brokenness of that and all the wondering, what's next? We remembered, we were reminded of God's faithfulness. That his faithfulness to us wasn't dependent on our ability to earn it or deserve it, our faithfulness to him. His faithfulness to us was because of who he is. And in those broken, raw, painful moments, God brought people into our church. I still run into them and meet new, new folks uh, from time to time who, who God brought in during that season of brokenness because their life was a mess. And the only place that they felt they could show up was a church that was a mess. God used that to continue to live out his vision for his church. That's a part of our story. That story continues at the next partner gathering, which is on September 22nd. I'd like to invite you all, even if you're not a partner, to join us for that. Our next partner gathering, we're going to be commissioning and, and kind of officially instituting a Summit's Next Expression, a Riverside neighborhood church out in the Lockhart Maitland area and, and and that team has been building and launching much in the way that that Summit did in its early days. It'll be a different kind of, uh, of, of campus for Summit. It'll be more of a neighborhood expression of the church and it's awesome. I've been and I love it. It's a reminder that God is still writing the story of what he wants to do at Summit. I love that all of those things are a part of our story. The broken things, I would change the brokenness if I could, but I wouldn't change God's faithfulness. The buildings, whatever, they, whatever else they represented, they represented an opportunity, an opportunity for God to work. And we got to be a part of that. And we get to continue being a part of that. Early on, I was often asked uh, if I ever thought Summit would be like this. And usually the, the like this was, was, uh, was accompanied with some gesture referring to the building or the crowd or the, or the scale of the event. I mean, all of those things were wonderful and exciting. And, and, and again, they're part of our story. Um, but I never really doubted that God would build his church. I mean, he says he will. He declares it in his word. So I didn't doubt that, that, that things that were exciting would happen. Um, but the thing that I had a hard time imagining, before Summit was Summit, before we knew what we were up to, before any of that, when I imagined, like, if God could do anything, the things that, that surprised me, the things that I really could only imagine in general terms um, and the specificity uh, and the reality of, uh, of the transformation that I've seen is so much greater. The thing that I could only think about in general terms was that people's lives would change. But when you see that happen, when you see that happen again and again and again in a marriage, in a relationship, in a person's life, in the breaking free of an addiction, the healing of a past wound, in hope and identity that is no longer swayed by the, by the circumstances that you're in, but is firmly rooted in Jesus. When you see those things happen, there's so much more beautiful in reality than we can ever imagine in general terms. I've gotten to have a front row seat to see that happen again and again. God has used our church family to change lives. I'm so grateful for that. And now... 18 years later, I am at least 18 years older, uh, and I'm the father of an 18-year-old uh, daughter. Our oldest, uh, Mulanesh, is 18 years old, so this year marked her, you know, her 18th year, her graduation uh, from high school, and, and her launching uh, into college. She's going to University of North Florida, and she's, uh, she's doing the nursing program up there, and she's, she's awesome. She, we're so excited for her, and she's doing such a good job. But that, that, all of that circumstance uh, has been a new experience uh, for Brandy and I as parents. And I find myself not thinking about 
how old her being 18 makes me feel, but really what does it mean for us as parents um, to usher our children, to see our children from child to adult, to send them, to, to release uh, some of the control and to send them on their way. And what is it that we hope for them when we say you know, goodbye uh, at, their, at their dorm room and drive away and we're thinking about what just happened, what is it that we hope for them? Of course, we hope they get good grades. We hope they're, they're not idiots. We hope that, that, they, that they make friends and that they feel comfortable and, and, and that they're reminded of our love for them and all of that. But really, when it comes down to it, as I thought about what does it mean to send my little girl on, to be an adult, what do I want for her in that? My desire for her is that she'll remember who she is so that she can become who she's being made to be. She'll remember who she is so that she can become who God is making her to be. All the other things, all the, all the other circumstances, they may be good, they may be bad. Most of us listening to this have lived long enough to know uh, that, that, that life has both ups and downs. And circumstances change. And we want our children, when, when we send them on their way, to not be defined by their circumstances. To not feel great simply because their circumstances are great and to not feel unvalued simply because they're in difficult times. We want them to remember who they are so that they can become who God is making them to be. My hope is that she won't measure herself against whatever circumstances she's facing, but that she'll remember who she is and whose she is. Then, when she faces the unknown, whether the prospects seem fair or fearful, She's not at risk of becoming merely a product of her circumstances. For us, as an 18-year-old church, I think we're in much the same place. We find ourselves this year in new circumstances, facing new challenges, facing new opportunities. Things have so fundamentally changed in almost every one of our lives that it feels like we've crossed some sort of line and there's no going back from that. COVID-19, if we just look at that, it's changed nearly everything about how we relate to each other, what our priorities are, how comfortable we feel in our lives, how we assess the world around us, how we judge those who lead us. It has impacted uh, us from, from, from those of you who have lost loved ones because of COVID-19. You've lost jobs because your job just disappeared. It went away. We face challenges in school. There's been this undercurrent of fear and uncertainty. People have found themselves struggling for mental or relational health and feeling isolated in the midst of that. For some, the demons of an addiction they thought they had long ago killed have reared their ugly heads. And then you look at the current racial unrest in our country and the political climate, and you realize like we are in so many ways, in so many big and important ways, a country divided. Not everyone, not all of you see the world the way that I see it, and you don't see it the same as, the, as, as maybe even the person in your same house. There's division in our country, and however you feel about it, and whatever side you fall on in that, the effects of it oftentimes are felt much deeper than we realize. It's not just happening out there. It is a part of how we, how we feel about our world. The uncertainty, the anger, the frustration, whatever it might be, it impacts us. And for some of you, for some of us, 
what looms in our lives, the circumstances that we didn't see coming this year. Aren't COVID-19, aren't politics, aren't, aren't racial justice, like that's, that is a backdrop and it may be impacting it, but for you it is so much more personal. It's the cancer diagnosis. It's the marriage crumbling before your eyes. It's the child hell-bent on wrecking their life and you're standing by helpless and brokenhearted. It's the parent who's no longer there. It's the love of a lifetime that's now a thing of the past. It's a life in ruins. All of that is real and all of that is present in our church family. All of that and more. So, as a church of 18, what do we do? When we face the unknown, the unexpected, the undesired, what do we do? Do we first measure ourselves against our circumstances and decide how to move forward from that? I don't think that's where we start. We should certainly take an honest look at what's on the horizon, but before we move forward, we need to start with remembering. Remembering who He is and whose we are, so that we can continue to become who He's making us to be. So who is He? Who is our God? In the midst of the unknown, the unexpected, the unwanted, who is our God? Is He big enough? powerful enough? Does he know what he's up to? Does he have a plan? Does he even care? Is he better than our best circumstances? Is there more hope in him than in our brightest preferred future? Is he bigger than our biggest adversary? Is he more certain than our most inevitable outcome? There's this really great passage uh, in Exodus chapter 3, and this is, you know, everyone knows this is you know, Moses and the burning bush. If you've watched uh, Prince of Egypt, you kind of know the context uh, for that story. It gets most of the big parts uh, right. But there's this guy, Moses, who's kind of failed at rescuing uh, the, the Israelites, and so he ran away, and he's, and he's you know, hiding out in the mountains, uh, tending, uh, tending a flock. Um, and God approaches him in, in a burning bush. And there's, it's interesting because it's such a supernatural story. I mean, these extraordinary, he has this extraordinary God encounter, but it's such a human story. It is such a human story in the way Moses interacts with this that I can't help but love the story and love, uh, and love Moses uh, for, his, for his humanity in this. So if you don't know the backstory, you know, the Israelites have been enslaved for generations. I mean, they have lost identity. They have lost dignity. They have been a, a brick-building machine dehumanized for generations. And Moses, at one point, tried to, tried to unsettle uh, the things that were and maybe provide, bring some justice to the circumstances. He gets run out of town, and then he has this encounter with God. And God says to him, and this is in Exodus 3, starting in verse 7. The Lord said to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he goes on to say to Moses, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God says, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to use you to do it. So go and do that. And Moses has some of the, mo the, the most practical questions you can imagine. Moses says to God, and this is verse 11, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So who am I to do this? 
And God answers, I will be with you. It's interesting. God says, who you are isn't the first question you should be asking. It's who is with you in this. I'll be with you. I'm the one who will make you who you are. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And so then Moses has another question, again, one I love. So he goes, so suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your father sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Now that's, I, you know, it's hard to get in Moses' head in here. Was it like his roundabout way of being like, you know, I know their name, but what would you tell them your name is? Or, or was it like, a, by what authority? Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell these people to risk their lives. They have, they, have been, they have been under the thumb of Egypt for generations, and they're supposed to say, to, to believe that somehow they're going to be miraculously rescued from this. Who is it that they're going to trust enough with their lives, their very existence, to rescue them? And God says, this is what you say to them. Or God says, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you say to them. I am has sent me to you. And then I imagine, now it's not clear in the text, but I imagine Moses had a like, what? Look, because then God goes on and says, okay, and also say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. But God made a declaration in that I am who I am that is profound. And commentators have all kinds of things to say about it because when God says, I am, it's kind of, he is claiming it all. He is saying, I encompass everything. I am from everything. I, I am beholden to nothing. One commentator talks about it in this way. When he says, I am, he's saying that he is self-existence, self-existent. He's a being unto himself, that he is eternal and unchangeable, always the same yesterday, today, and forever that he is incomprehensible, we cannot by searching find him out. This name checks all bold and curious inquiries concerning God. And finally, that he is faithful and true to all his promises, unchangeable in his world, or in his word, as well as in his nature. God is that big. And we need a big God. We need a big God for the, for the known circumstances in our life, and we need a big God for the unknown. A couple years ago, I was hiking on the Appalachian Trail with, uh, with my two then 13-year-old sons, and our, our, our youngest uh, was, was not yet in that age, age range, and this is kind of their coming of age. Uh, so the two older boys were on the Appalachian Trail. We'd been going for um, about a week and a half. And, uh, and most days, you know, I, I pretended to let them hike ahead of me. Uh, really, I just needed more stops and more rest than, than they did. But on this particular day, I'd woke up in the morning just feeling really anxious. And I was unsettled in my heart and I was nervous. And, and I knew it was fed by the fact that I hadn't had a cell phone signal for, uh, for a few days. And, uh, and I hadn't heard uh, that all was well um, from home. And so I purposely and early let the boys uh, get ahead of me, and, and I walked, and I was just steeped in anxiety. Mulu, our now 18-year-old, then uh, was 16. She'd just gotten her driver's license uh, when, when we left on this trip, and, uh, and my mind was just rolling over and over all of the bad things that could happen to her, to, to the family, all the things that could be ripping me, my life apart, and I don't even know it yet. And the uncertainty built and built and built, and I tried to reason my way out of it, like, yeah, it's unlikely something bad will happen, but... Bad things happen. 
And usually the really bad things don't give us a warning. They don't, they don't give attendance to our preferences or our schedule. You know what pulled me out of that anxiety? It wasn't reasoning my way out of it. It wasn't looking at these potential circumstances and saying like, I'll be all right. It was remembering the bigness of God. Alone on that trail, covered in trees, the single path cutting through the woods, I sang, who knows how long and for how many times, the hymn, How Great Thou Art. The lyric goes as follows. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. In order to know that whatever happened, that it would be okay and in some way beyond my control, I had to remember the bigness of God. I had to remember who he is, that he is the I am. In light of that reality, who he is, that he is the I am, we look at how are we attached to that reality. Are we seen? Are we cared for? Are we loved? God may be bigger than our circumstances, but do my circumstances matter to him? Do I matter to him? God clears up any doubt in that regard in the person of Jesus Christ. This week, my mother-in-law celebrated her 40-year spiritual birthday. Um, 40 years ago, uh, she was in desperate circumstances, and she found herself uh, in a church looking for some circumstantial help, and and she found Jesus. And and, and And that moment has radically changed her eternity and her life. 40 years of being transformed by the Savior who loves her. She was so certain in that, in that moment of salvation, in the, in, the, in the hours and days that followed, that, that something great had happened that she wanted everyone to know. And so she went and she got a t-shirt uh, that said, Born Again, and she wore this t-shirt with pride. Uh, and, uh, and so we were talking about that at dinner um, this week. I was talking about it with the kids. And, the, and for our youngest, the phrase, Born Again, uh, wasn't one that was familiar to him, and so he was a little bit confused about that. And I, I said, "Well, the born again refers to a conversation uh, that Jesus had with a man na- named Nicodemus, and this is found uh, in John uh, chapter three. Nicodemus was this teacher of the law; he was a ruler. He was also very intrigued uh, by Jesus, and so though, though it was unpopular uh, for uh, for the ruling um, spiritual authorities uh, to be associated with Jesus, Nicodemus snuck out." And, and found Jesus one night and talked to him and, and asked, more or less was like, what are you up to? And, and that's when Jesus says, well, you know, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is just as confused as my son was about what in the world uh, that means. And, and in that conversation, in that conversation about what Jesus was up to, what his intentions were, he says the following. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's how much God cares about us. 
He is the I am and we are his. That changes everything. And, 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 and his role in our lives, his caring about us, it doesn't just pertain um, to salvation. It doesn't just assure us uh, of eternal victory, but it, it reminds us, we're reminded also of his presence in our life and in our circumstances. In Hebrews 13, the author is writing uh, to, to the Hebrews, the Israelite uh, people, and, and he, he, he makes this interesting point in chapter 13. He contrasts uh, the things that we tend uh, to look for um, security in, in this world, relationships and resources. Um, and in, the, in that comparison, he makes this declaration. He says, God himself has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Whatever your circumstances, whatever else we would look to for security, God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And that declaration recalled in Hebrews is actually referring back uh, to uh, to Deuteronomy. Um, This is in chapter 31. And this is near uh, the end of the the rescue of the Israelites. So Moses, uh, in the burning bush, we kind of encounter the beginning of God using him in the rescue of the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 31, he's nearing the end. And Moses is sharing his final words with his people with the Israelites who are on the border, on the edge of getting in the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The Israelites, for two generations, were in the process of being rescued, and they needed to be reminded They needed to be reminded how big God was. They needed to be reminded that He is with us, that He cares about us, that He will not forsake us. Their circumstances changed who knows how many times, and every time the, the horizon looks scary, we need to remember those things, who He is and whose we are. We are His. We're His beloved children, the treasure of creation. We matter more than we dare to believe. And we have purpose in our lives that goes well beyond the scope or scale of our circumstances. Every time I'm praying with someone who is going through difficult circumstances, my prayer is that we will remember the power of God, that He is the I Am, and that we'll remember the goodness of God, that He is our Savior, that He does not leave us and does not forsake us. When we remember that, when we remember who he is and whose we are, we face our circumstances differently. It's not that our circumstances change, but rather that we are changed. We see differently and respond differently. All of those things I said previously about COVID-19 and, and, and the changes it has brought to our world, like that is true. But in front of us is an opportunity to see the gospel come alive in ways that a year ago were not likely. We're not on the horizon. There is a frailty, a vulnerability that is culturally widespread that, that, that people are feeling and many have never felt in this way before. And they don't need human solutions. Not from us. They need hope. They need us to remember who our God is, and who we are in Him. Only when we do that can we bring real, otherworldly hope 
into the broken, scary, fear-inducing circumstances that we face. The world needs us to be the church. The world needs us to be the church now, whatever our circumstances. Earlier I talked, when we were in the, you know, when we were in the apartment, we, we said, we're not going to wait to be the church. We believed we were the church then and there, even though we were just figuring things out. And we're not going to wait now. We're not going to wait for everything to return to normal. We're not going to wait for, for everyone to, to feel like we can worship in person in the exact same way uh, that we did before. We don't wait to be the church because we are the church. Jesus has declared it, and that reality exists. We just need to live into it. We need to remember who we are and whose we are so that we can continue to become who he's making us to be. We're not going to wait to care about the lost people in our world in this moment where people are feeling more lost than they ever have. We're not going to say enough is enough. We're good where we are. We're not going to stop serving in the world around us. We're not going to, we're not going to settle for less than God's very best. He wants good things better things than we dare to imagine. We're not going to be limited by the, si- the size and the scale and scope of the places that we gather. All those buildings I mentioned earlier, the schools, the, the clubhouses, the whatever, all of those things, those, thi- those places matter because of what happened in them. Not because they exist, but because the church has existed in them. And for the last several months, the church... Our church has been existing in your homes, in my home. So how do we do that? How do we do that in this moment? How do we remember who he is and whose we are? How do we continue to become who he's making us to be? Eventually, we're going to be uh, reopening in, in, in a much fuller way uh, the, the buildings of the summit for especially worship on Sunday mornings. And, and on November 29th, uh, the, the first week of Advent, uh, we, are, we are working towards having kind of a full uh, reopening in that. Until then, here's what I'm inviting you into. Here's what I'm committing myself to. To not sit in my home in isolation taking church in and waiting, biding my time for things to return to normal. I'm calling all of us, you and me, to see our homes as churches, not the buildings, but the people in them. To invite our friends, our neighbors, our families. If you are comfortable inviting people into your home, invite them in and use the worship service as a means of beginning church with them of living into that reality of of who God is and who he is making us to be. The Israelites needed to be reminded again and again and again, and we need those same reminders. And we remember, we remember who God is and whose we are when we tell each other, when we sing it to each other, when we learn from each other, and when we humbly give ourselves to be transformed in the context of community for the sake of others. So let's do that. Practically speaking, I'm inviting you. Start next week. Open up your home. Invite someone in. Be the church with them. 
On September 22nd, we'll be having a partner gathering, the gathering where we'll talk a lot about how we can support you in that and connect with you in that. And, and, and I'd love for you, if you're inclined uh, to do this, to, to begin as soon as you're able, attend that partner gathering. But don't wait. Don't wait to be the church. The world needs us to be. The world needs us to remember, to remember who he is and whose we are. I look forward to whatever the, the November 29th holds in terms of reopening the, the buildings of Summit for Worship, but I really, deeply and passionately look forward to the opportunity we have in the next few months to see Summit Church, this vision to build biblically functioning communities that reach lost people, connect in Christ-centered relationships, teach truth, serve others, worship God, to see that come alive in my home, in your home, throughout our city. That kind of transformation available street to street, neighborhood to neighborhood, that can change our world. Not because of who we are, but who God is. But all of that, all of that we, ha that we have coming in the months ahead, all of the opportunity ahead of us, we don't face those circumstances without taking time to remember.